0: Hey guys, Jared Lopes here from Dad Tired. Welcome to week one of A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. This is a five-week mini-series, and each week, my friend Chris Hilkin will walk us through what it looks like to lead our family well when it comes to apologetics, and specifically, how to equip our kids with a Christian worldview as we train them to live as Jesus' followers in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile toward the things of God. If you want to take these conversations deeper, we provide some free worksheets for you at dadtired.com forward slash homework. These are filled with an overview of each week's topics, some questions to ask your kids around the dinner table, and the Bible passages that Chris pulled from for the series. This is all a completely free resource to you as we continue to try to equip men to lead their family well. It's made possible because of the generous donors of our online community, and if you'd like to become one of those partners, you can go to dadtire.com forward slash give. Again, if you'd like to become a partner of the ministry, you can go to dadtire.com forward slash give. With that being said, let's dive into week one. I remember it like it was yesterday, I had a conversation with a Christian that I actually respected when I was in high school, and and I was coming out of biology class, and I was learning about all these things, and, and, and there was this movement towards like the middle late of my high school, where these um, atheist apologists would come in. And it was like Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. And they started, they called them the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. They started writing these books called The God Delusion and God is Not Great and How Religion Poisons Everything and The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. It says there is no need for a God anymore. And I remember thinking about these things and these thinkers who I thought were brilliant, but then they were all coming to a conclusion that was that God doesn't exist. And So I asked one of my Christian leaders that I respected so highly, and I remember him telling me, Chris, you ask a lot of really big questions, and I know that you're a thinker, and I know that you want evidence for stuff. You know, I know that's kind of like your shtick. You know, you don't take anything blindly. You you want to make sure everything's true. You're a skeptic at heart. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Jesus, if God wanted us to have proof, he would have given it to us. And the reason he doesn't give it to us is because he wants us to have faith. And if he gave you all the answers and showed you and made it obvious to you, then you wouldn't have to have faith. And that's why God kind of has hidden himself. Richard Dawkins actually talks about this at the end of an interview that he does one time. Someone asks him, he's an he's an atheist, he's vehemently opposed to religion and God and everything. And they say, if you ever met God face to face, what would you ask him? And Richard Dawkins says, I would ask him, why have you taken such great pangs to hide yourself? And this is legitimately what I thought about Christianity. Maybe some of you as dads think the same thing, that maybe the church is a good thing. I think it helps people. They're very charitable and all those things. But but as an intellectual endeavor, we don't really need to believe the Bible is true or that a the, the guy actually came back from the dead or that a, a flood flooded the whole earth and there was a whole bunch of animals on an ark at one point. And, and this is kind of the route that I was going down is, is I still think the church had its purpose. I just don't think that it was true. And I thought those are two very different things. And and then I jumped into the field of Christian apologetics, and it was the first time I was ever introduced to brilliant Christian thinkers, people who were going up, up against these these other brilliant atheists, but were winning these debates against them. These guys that were writing The Free Will Defense by Elvin Plantinga, William Lane Craig, Josh and Sean McDowell, these these brilliant men of faith, J.P. Moreland and Norman Geisler, I, there was a whole field of study I'd never understood before of men who stood in faith and said, we, we follow evidence to, we follow the ramp of reason before we take this leap of faith. We believe there's a God because we have found evidence that it is so. And finally, my brain for the first time in my whole Christian experience became triggered. I started going, oh my goodness, it's not just an emotional endeavor, it's an intellectual endeavor. You don't have to check your brain at the door to follow God. You don't have to just say, oh well, this is a good thing even if it's not a true thing. That not only in the marketplace of ideas did Christianity make sense, but I felt like the theistic worldview and, and the Bible and Jesus was the most reasonable and rational, even though I'd been told all the opposite all growing up. And because I partly didn't want it to be true, you know? I wanted to believe that there wasn't a God, that I could do whatever I wanted to whomever I wanted, however I wanted. And, and I kind of arrived at the opposite conclusion. And, and so that's been my job now for the past however many years, along with being a pastor and working with, high school students and teaching at as a teaching pastor at a church is I'm also a, a Christian apologist so I get to speak at conferences and and do debates and defend the Christian faith all as a an exercise to bring people into knowledge of who Jesus is and I love doing that and I love going to the conferences and showing the arguments for God's existence and I love discussing with atheists the truth of the Christian scriptures and the evidence for the resurrection and and I could go on about these things all day long and I love to teach on these things I love to speak On these things, but now I find myself in in a really peculiar position where my role and responsibility as an apologist is to turn towards my family of origin, my five kids—Peyton, Harper, Brady, Leo, and Finley—and begin to convince them. And most of my convincing is going to be done through discipleship and one-on-one connection and and living with them and loving on them and doing all these things, but. I really became interested as I was talking to Jared and and talking about the podcast about what does it mean to do apologetics with our families? What does it mean for us as men of faith to stand in our families and answer these questions that will certainly evolve over time, but that we're able to give coherent, reasonable answers to the questions that our kids ask? And with that comes this base assumption, which is kind of scary, which is at its core, I'm primarily responsible for my kids' worldview. I am going to be like it or not, whether the burden is fair or unfair, it's just a reality. Is that the world? The, the lens by which I see the world is going to be, for all intents and purposes, the lens by which my kids see the world. So it, it's not just important. And some of us, right? It's that old adage of like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And that's great. The problem is that some of us, as dads, if that's how we came to faith, or we had some supernatural experience, we we just can't guarantee that for our kids. You know, we can't guarantee that our kids are going to have the same like post ACDC opioid trip that brought us into faith, or that we're going to have some supernatural healing that takes place in our family, or, or that we're just someone who we're convinced because of the reality of God in our prayer life. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. They just, the problem is they don't translate to other people. And the reason that can be troublesome is because some of you are going to raise a skeptic like me. And, the, and so that was really the journey that I went on that I want to be able to share with you guys as we talk about this idea of, of worldview. And so we'll jump into it. We'll talk about different arguments for God's existence but today we're really gonna focus on what does it mean to have a Christian worldview? My contention would be, I'm a single dad of five kids. My wife passed away last year. We talked about it on the, on the podcast a couple weeks back. But I am every day, whether I like it or not, and this is the scary part of being a dad, which I think a lot of you guys get, we're shaping our kids when we want to and when we don't want to. We're shaping them by what we commit and what we omit. We're shaping them by what we say and what we left, what we leave unsaid. And so if you don't feel that burden of fatherhood that I think scripture rightly puts in front of us, I think it's, it's important to take that, that burden back on ourselves. Not that we're supposed to bear it alone because we're going to mess up, but that God's grace is sufficient for us, that we can ask for forgiveness and we can reconcile with our kids and we can sit on the edge of their bed some nights and just ask them to forgive us and we can apologize to them. But I do think First Peter makes it really clear. We should always be prepared for anyone who asks what the hope is that lies within us. And that includes our kids. It's not just, you know, the atheist on the street that walks up and goes, hey, I saw your WWJD bracelet. I don't believe in God. You know, that, that really doesn't ever happen. The way that we talk about worldview or the way that we do apologetics, particularly in our households, is through these kind of micro conversations, these small moments where we can insert a Christian worldview. And so instead of continuing to use the word worldview, let me try to explain it to you in a way that was really helpful for me, and maybe it's helpful for you. When we, when we say the word worldview, we really mean that every human being who lives wears a pair of glasses, and these glasses are simply the way that they see everything. You can't see anything without them. They kind of cloud or shade or give light to everything that you do. You see your money through this lens. You see your relationships through this lens. You see your family through this lens. You see your meaning through this lens. You see morality through this lens. And each of us it has one of these things, has a worldview or a paradigm or a way of answering life's big questions that makes sense to us. And for a lot of us, we will have this experience in our life where we have what we call in the church, maybe like a faith crisis, but really all it is, is it's a testing of our worldviews. A worldview, as one theologian breaks it down, it's four big questions. If you guys are taking notes, or you're writing along, here's the four big questions of the worldview. Number one is origin. Origin. Where do we come from? You can see how important this is, that if you have a theistic worldview, means you believe that God is the worldview by which you see everything, that you were made on purpose, by purpose, for purpose. God revealed himself to mankind to let them know what he wants from them and who he is to them. Then, of course, origin is different. Origin for the Christian is, I come from a passion of God that his people would glorify him. I am not born out of necessity. I i wasn't needed as probably back in the old time when you talked about like Thor and the gods of the Sumerian epics and those things. Mankind was created to serve the gods, to get them food or to arouse them in different ways. and And that's really not what we understand to be true about Christian theism. Our origin story is that God loved the world and made people in his image on purpose in order to glorify himself, the book of Isaiah tells us. So what is your origin? Where do we come from? This is the first question of worldview, the big questions that paint our whole life. The second one is meaning. What is the meaning of it all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are we here in the first place? And how do we make sense of our existence? How do we make sense of the experiences we have as people? And depending on what lenses you wear, that is going to absolutely shape how you live your life, right? If you think that your meaning is just strictly existential, right? Or if it's hedonistic, right? The meaning of life is just to pursue all pleasure and to rid yourself from all pain. Well, when you see someone on the side of the road that's hurting, or if you are at Walmart and you see a shopping cart and it's blocking a view blocking your ability to park or someone else's ability to park somewhere, it's none of your concern. Why? Because if that doesn't bring you pleasure and if it avoids someone else experiencing pain, then it's okay for for us to do, which kind of leads into point number three, question number three, which is morality. How should we live? Like, What is good and what is evil? And who's the final say when my good and your good aren't the same, or when my evil and your evil aren't the same? Worldview asks the questions, where did we come from? What is the meaning of it all? How should we live? Or what is good and evil? And finally, destiny. Where are we going? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And it's my job as a dad for my kids, Peyton Harper, Brady, Leo, and Finley, that I am dripping every day into shaping their worldview that they would constantly know where they came from, what is the meaning of their existence, how they ought to live and where they are going. And some of these, obviously, they play into our world a lot more as dads than other ones, right? How should we live? The question of morality, every time we discipline our kids, we are teaching them a moral worldview. And for us who follow Jesus, it's a theistic worldview, right? Like you hitting your sister isn't just wrong because dad said so. It's wrong because God says so. Because if we even think hateful thoughts towards someone, we're guilty of committing murder against them. And so that girl, I tell my son, Peyton, all the time, that girl, Harper, that is your sister, is both my daughter and God's daughter. And so my defense of her and my discipline of you, because you have hurt her, goes far beyond I want to make you into a good person. It's I want you to see the world the way that Jesus sees the world. Where did we come from? What is the meaning of it all? How should we live? And where are we going? In each of our kids' lives, and and this is why I'm so passionate about this topic, because when I had my faith crisis, when my worldview started getting shaken and other competing worldviews came in, it was my job then, almost as a judge, to weigh those two court cases and go, man, this one makes more sense here. This one makes more sense here. And this is what we call faith crisis. It's just our kids testing the waters of different worldviews And for me, I really want to create faith crises in my kids as soon as possible. Why? Because I want to be the one to answer their questions. In kind of a weird way of thinking about it is if you don't commit to influencing your kid's worldview, you'll be the only person in your kid's life who's made that commitment. Because my friends, my kids' friends are gonna try to convince them of their worldview. Media is gonna try to convince them of that worldview. Humanists are gonna try to convince them of a humanist worldview pantheists are going to try to convince them that all they are is spirit. Everyone's going to try to teach my kids what the meaning of life is, where they came from, how they should live and where they are going. And if I go, well, I don't want to influence them or or, I don't want to pressure them, then I'm actually going to be the only influence in their life that doesn't do that. So we do it judiciously, right? We do it carefully and gently and respectfully, but, but we do need to do this. This is part of our calling as dads. As we're leading our families and we're doing what we're called to do. And the best model, I, th- I think, by far is drip, not splash. What that means is uh, think of an IV drip versus a cannonball into the deep end. You can't really sit your kids down and go, Today we're gonna talk about worldviews and we'll talk about this once and then you better remember it for the rest of your lives. The better plan is a constant daily how can I insert this conversation into what we talk about all the time? And they have longings, right? We can appeal to our kids' longings so naturally that we all have, are born with this kind of vacuous state of our heart, this vacuum in our heart. I love the way that one writer put it. He's talking about the, the growth of Christianity in communist China. One statistic shows that in 1949, there's about a million believers at the start of communism in China. And it's a, it's a group that's highly ritualistic, and it's shame, honor, culture. In 1949, when the bamboo curtain went up and communism kind of started to reign. There was about a million Christians in China. Under the threat of persecution, under the, in the underground church, when the bamboo curtain kind of fell, in 2010, the Pew Research Center calculated there could be as many as 100 million Christians now in China. And one writer wrote this, it's the biggest uptick of Christianity in the history of the world. The largest revival ever in the history of Christianity just happened in the last 80 years underneath the communist regime of China. There's predictions that there there will be as many as 160 million Christians in China by 2025 and 247 million by 2030. A communist professor once said, you Christians should be thankful for communism because it left the soul empty and paved a way for you to be able to present the gospel to them. It's like a heart-wrenching reality, but our kids probably aren't gonna escape that pain. Even like my baby daughter, Finley, she's going to experience this weight of emptiness of her soul that the gospel alone can heal. And I want her to experience those things sooner in life rather than later. I want to experience under my house rather than when she's off in some college where her friends and her influences may or may not point her back to Jesus. I want to do that sooner rather than later. There's great importance in this world right now. Uh, Lord Thomas DeWore once said, minds are like parachutes. They only function when open. Great thought. But I think superior to that is what G.K. Chesterton responds, which is, open minds are great, but the mind is open in order that it might close down on something solid. He said, your mouth and your mind are alike. Sure, you open your mouth to eat, but once you've tasted something, you then bite down and you start to chew on it and you start to make sense of it. So this idea of the consummate open mind, the always open mind, is it's not really the way that we do anything in our world. Because if, you, if your mind is always open, it doesn't start to chew and close down on something and make sense of its reality, then you just—you kind of look like a guy who's eating and never shuts his mouth to digest the food. Right, and so here's what I want to present to you with the rest of our time here, and it, it won't be long. I want to give you five primary worldviews and talk to you a little bit about, about their weaknesses and their strengths, and how we can, as dads, begin to steer. And some of you, could, you have kids that are two, and so your conversations are going to be so different than someone who has a kid who's twenty two, or a kid who's seventeen, or a kid who's twelve. And and so just like when your three year old asks you where do babies come from, and a remarkably appropriate answer is from mommy, right? You wouldn't get into like the alleles and the breakdown of the DNA and the chromosomal structures and and the way that we produce endorphins and stuff like that and the the chemical cocktail of love. You you wouldn't get into any of that stuff, right? Serotonin, oxytocin, like you would never get into that because it's a three-year-old. But as their brain continues to evolve and to grow, our answer to that question must also, right? Like if you're telling your 18-year-old that babies come from mommies, then they're going to go to school and go, I don't, dad, I don't think you (laughs) I don't think you've been reading a lot of books lately, you know? And the best answer I could possibly give a 20 year old at this point is going to be really short if they go and study in medical school. Then they're going to have to come teach me where babies come from because I only have this limited understanding of what it is. But as our kids grow, so must our answers and so must our engagement with them on these topics. But my contention would be, and, and something that I'm challenging myself on, this is not something that I do great. And that's what I, wanna, I want you guys to hold me accountable with, is I also want to make sure that I'm starting to drip this into to my kids, even at the young age they are right now. Seven, five, four, two, and one year. I want to start finding practical ways to drip this into their everyday because the, the war for their worldview will be the greatest war that they fight. The war for meaning in their life, man. I've had this privilege of working for the past 10 years with a ministry that deals exclusively with 11th and 12th graders in Southern California. So you're talking about like the Mecca of like the new wave of the world, right? Like when you go to San Diego and then you go back to the Midwest, it just feels like you've jumped 10 years back in time. And people are so, they're so cool. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Oklahoma. But then you go back there and it's, it's like the conversations that we're having when I go visit Oklahoma are the ones that we had 10 years ago when I was in San Diego. It doesn't make one better than the other. In some cases, it can be the opposite. It can be San Diego can be in some cases the West Coast or New York can be 10 years further down the road of postmodernism or some really bad ideas too. But there is something to be said about how are we going to fight this battle for the worldviews of our kids? How are we going to be on the front lines of these conversations? Because make no mistake, like I said before, there is a war and there are soldiers and there are people gunning for them. And so we need to be an active participant in that through love and compassion and affection and understanding and asking questions. And so here's some of these primary worldviews The first one and the most common one in America is actually the theistic worldview. It's the idea that all reality comes from an infinite personal God that exists. There is a finite material world, but there's also an infinite spiritual world world. And so there is such thing as truth and, and truth comes from God's revelation to us as people and the material world we can know because we've got our five senses. We can use science and rational thought and all those things. But ultimately, the reason that the world is consistent, the reason that we can do science and we can explore the universe and we've got these mathematical constants and is because God has ordered and sustained the universe which means when we ask the question of where do we come from, we came from what we talked about earlier. We came from God. What is the meaning of our life? We are to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what is morality? Well, morality is that which God is and what he is like, and what is immoral is that which God is not and what he is not like. So why is murder wrong? Murder is not just wrong because it hurts someone. Murder is wrong because God is a God of life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. So murder is the taking of life, and that's not characteristic to who our God is. So if we were made to exemplify who God is in his image to glorify him, and we fail to do that, murdering someone is a complete failure to demonstrate how much our God is life. And that's why it's sin. All sin is to bear the image of God wrongly. It's to say, look at me, I'm being like God, but then I lie about it. Look at me, I'm being like God, but I'm yelling at my wife. Well, that's sin. Why is it sin? Because that's not who God is like. Whenever we misrepresent God, we are committing sin. Do you know who knew this really well in scripture is Moses. Moses. Moses's big problems in his life came from when he tried to represent God and did so incorrectly. God makes a big deal out of being misrepresented. And so our moral values and duties, what we should and shouldn't do and what is good and what is evil is derived from this idea that God is good and he is ultimate perfection. And when we bear his image wrongly, we are committing sin. So there's a consistency in all those things in theism that makes sense of our reality There's also another worldview, which is naturalism, which uh, this is, I think, agnosticism, existentialism, atheism, all is under the umbrella of naturalism. What's naturalism? Naturalism is the material universe is all that exists. So everything's one dimensional, right? The idea of there being some transcendent reality or the soul or the spirit or supernatural is all incoherent. It's incorrect. It's it's a delusion because everything can be explained through science and the natural law. So then where did we come from? Well, we came about as an accident of random chance. There might be a, an intentional process of survival of the fittest, but ultimately, everything can be explained by atoms in motion. That stardust grew up and it became conscious at some point, and that now we are who we are today through these series of unguided, just-so, happenstantial processes well, then what does it tell us about meaning? We don't really have any revealed meaning then. Everyone is kind of free to make up meaning however they see fit. The idea of there being some ultimate meaning to your life would be an illusion because you are ultimately just a piece of space dust. So a piece of space dust who says, the meaning of my space dustness is, right, you would never take someone seriously who finished that sentence. Now you might decide you want to make meaning of your life, but it's, it's no more meaningful than anybody else's. And everyone's meaning to their life would be right for them and be wrong for somebody else. So there's no ultimate meaning to life. There's no ultimate reality. There's no ultimate moral value. And all morality is, it's derived from utilitarianism, which is the idea that we want to proliferate as a species. We want to pass on our genes. And so if it's helpful to passing on genes, it's good. And if it's not helpful, it's bad. And we'll talk about that a lot more when we get into the moral argument here in a couple of weeks, but that's basically kind of naturalism, as it were. No objective moral values or duties actually exist. Their preferences, socially useful behavior, that's the worldview of naturalism. Humanism emphasizes the agency of human beings, both as an individual and collectively. It's all about making sure that our species and we as individuals get experience autonomy and We are absolutely a part of nature, but we are a part of nature that has evolved to the point we've got personality, but our personality is really brought on by the social and cultural structures around us. So how do we know what's true and what's not true? How do we make sense of the world? What is our meaning? Well, it can be found through science, critical thinking, empiricism, philosophy, but making sure that we always keep in the forefront that man is the chief end of himself, that we want humankind to... to thrive and to understand new things and to explore the universe through science. But ultimately, we are going to end up in a cosmic cooling or a heat death or every beautiful piece of art that's ever been made. And every person who's ever existed will go into the annals of history when everything collapses back on itself in a fiery explosion of nothingness. That's kind of the chief end of naturalism and humanism. There's nothing bigger there. So what is right and what is wrong? Again, it's, it's built in like a social structure you could say it's derived from evolution on what we think is right and wrong, but, but mostly it's, there's an improvement over time on ethics that has brought us to a point where we know what's right and wrong now because it's either good for our people or bad for our people as humankind. The most prominent development of worldview lately, the kind of the world that we live in, is it's postmodernism. So this is a worldview that says reality is all interpreted through a personal paradigm. I take in everything that I want and then I make truth out of what I think is right. Which means at a table of six people and we look at something in the middle of the table and someone says that's a cat, someone says it's a dog, someone says whatever. If we have a genuine desire and we have a genuine fervency and a passion that what we're saying is true, that truth is ultimately just a mental construct that's meaningful to an individual. So if your six is my seven and my eight is your nine and your cat is my dog and my green is your blue then if that's what we're really seeking though, and we are passionate about those things and we are convinced of those things, and my truth isn't hurting you, then my truth can be relative to me and to me alone. So this is kind of the idea of of postmodernism. There is no absolute truth. All truth is relative, which means that our social paradigm gives weight to our values So tolerance, freedom of expression, inclusion, refusal to claim to have answers are the most universal values, right? Which is why in postmodernism, we shouldn't be surprised to find out that Christianity has become an anathema, right? In postmodernism, when everything can be true, as long as you're fervent and you seek it with all of your heart and you are passionate about these things, to have a worldview that says there is only one truth, is kind of the pinnacle of hate, or it's the the pinnacle of breaking our social norms. And so that's postmodernism. Two that I would tie pretty closely together is, is the idea of pantheism or polytheism. Polytheism is like animism, spiritism, thousands of different religious belief systems, that mankind is the result of a bunch of gods either fighting or needing a, a workforce or whatever. And there's not too many people today that are going to assert or argue on behalf of a polytheistic worldview. Although some cultures are kind of born and bred into it, think um, Hinduism or different cultures like that, which would also ties closely to like pantheism, which is only the spiritual dimension exists. So everything else is an illusion. So spiritual reality is eternal, impersonal, it's and it's unknowable. It's possible to say that everything is a part of God or that God is in everything and in everyone. So the ultimate end of pantheism is, is not to pursue the pleasures of life, like humanism would say, or to seek everything through science to find out what truth is, because truth is ultimately, or the, or the material world is ultimately an illusion. And the best thing you can do is to get out of this cycle of experiencing the material world. And so that can obviously lead you to where do we come from? Well, we are, the origin of who we are is spiritual and it's not material. Well, then well then, what is right and what is wrong? What are the values that you have? It's, our reality is impersonal. So pantheistic thinkers believe there's no real distinction between good and evil. Unenlightened behavior is that which fails to understand essential unity in all things. And so instead of a specific right and wrong, there is more, how tied are you to materialism or how free are you from it? Now, a lot of times in here, you'll get the idea of, of like a Taoism or the yin and the yang and the, the ebb and flow of things, dharmic belief systems, what goes around comes around because ultimately the reality of everything being God is going to come back and get you if you're being a bad person. And these different worldviews are how we see everything. The glasses that you put on where you decide what you're going to follow is how you see the world. It's how you see origins, morality, meaning, and your destiny. And obviously, destiny is the one that probably has the biggest separation in all these things, right? Uh, for the naturalist, the when you die, that's the end. For the humanist, when you die, that's the end. For the postmodernist, whatever you believe happens when you die is probably correct for you. The pantheist would say that your destiny is ultimate obliteration. It's to reach nirvana. It's to have an absence of pain by overcoming it and and becoming distant from the material world. And theism says something really different. Theism says there will be ultimate justice. There will be ultimate reward. That no injustice will go unpunished and no reward, no good behavior will go unrewarded. There will be a separation of all things, and God, the good judge, is in charge of all of that. But those of us who are in Christ, as we read about in the New Testament, can have confidence that when we die, we will be with Jesus forever in an eternity set up. Not for all the good people who've ever lived, but for those who have surrendered their life to Jesus. And so our destinies could not be more different in those different worldviews. And so it's not just a side thing or a small thing. It's, it's central to how we think and how we believe. So with all that being said, I want to talk about this idea to finish off with, which how do we practically practice worldview conversations with our kids and in our relationships? This um, famous apologist named Jay Warner Wallace, he's actually a forensic examiner. He worked for, I think it's LAPD for a number of years, or maybe it's NYPD. Anyway, but he was a forensics examiner and he would go to like cold case murder files and he would go to the scenes of crimes. And if I'm getting the story right, his wife, follows Jesus. And he kind of said, well, I'm going to do the same exact thing at a crime scene that I'm going to do to the Bible. And I'm going to do this to the stories of Jesus. And so he ended up examining them, looking at them through that lens. Anyway, he writes this idea that when it comes to worldview, worldview is always done in relationship. Worldview without relationship is just an idea that won't really take root. So uh, think of a, a playing the piano. You might know every single key, right? You might be able to all 88 keys in the piano, you can say which one's which and where's the C and where's the C sharp and what chord this makes. But that doesn't mean that if I put you in front of a sheet of music, until you started to practice and practice muscle memory of those things, you just have a head full of knowledge without the ability for your hands to do anything. So he talks about the importance of setting worldview in motion. He says, and the base of all worldview that we want to stick is going to be through relationships. And that's where we as dads, and for me as a dad, is I can't just preach at my kids how they should think about the world. I need to engage with them. I don't want to yell at them. I want to earn the right to whisper to their hearts. I don't want to yell at them the right worldview. I want to be able to whisper in their pain where God is in the middle of those things. And so it's like kind of a daily prayer for me. And maybe it's for you too, that he would just kind of soften my heart because I can just be an idiot so often. And I annoy myself in that. But worldview conversations must be done in relationship and they must be accompanied by ritual. How do we put these things into practice? How do we show our kids firsthand what these things look like and and then how to do them? Some of the things that I've been learning that I want to share with you is number one, just to be Socratic, to listen and ask more questions. I really believe that an answer that's arrived at is far superior to an answer that's received. When I can get my kid to tell me why he shouldn't eat that extra piece of candy, it's so much deeper conviction for him than if I say, don't eat that candy. You know what I'm saying? If I walk him through the idea of sickness and the way that bacteria spreads and the way that gut health works and all this, if I can walk him through that Socratic and just ask him questions, and then he ends up answering, I probably shouldn't eat this candy. That will be a conviction of his heart and not just a response to authority that I'm giving to him. And so for me, I've really tried to instill that when I'm talking with my kids. How do I get them to arrive at the answer that I want them to arrive at without just telling them what to think. I'm going to teach them how to think. The second thing is to listen and watch with an eye towards worldviews. As you're you're watching TV or the other day, I I went to a Dodger game with my kid and and I just wanted to like, where can I see the gospel in motion? Where can I see worldviews in motion? And I heard someone say this phrase, I think everyone should be free to do whatever they want. That might seem really harmless and it might be, but that's 100% a truth statement based on a worldview. I think everyone should just be free to do what they want. It's important to ask, you know, what do you think about that? My oldest son's name Peyton. Peyton, what do you think about that? What do you think if I told you everyone should be free to do whatever they want, right? I mean, on humanism, this is essentially that idea or naturalism it's, or postmodernism. The, 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 they all have sprinklings of this inside their ideologies. And so I'm, I'm kind of testing foreign worldviews. What do you think about the idea that everyone should be free to do whatever they want, right? Now, the humanist might say, well, as long as it doesn't hurt people or as long as it brings more good than evil, for sure. But the question still remains, do you think that people should be able to do whatever they want to do? And I followed up with this question. If you had a kid, Peyton, let's say you have a kid someday. I hope you do. If you have a kid and you love them a lot, would you give them this advice? Okay, if you've got, if, let's say you have a seven-year-old someday, you're taking them to a, a baseball game like this. And would you ever tell them, son, I want you to do whatever you want to do. And my son's wheels and cogs started turning and he said, no, I think it's a bad idea. Okay, tell me why. If you had a kid someday and you love them so much and you want them to be a great member of this world, would you give them rules and directions? If you did, what would you give them? As my son starts talking about the rules he would give to his son, I start aligning them with the Ten Commandments and with the, the ideas that come from the Christian scriptures. And by the end of that, he's kind of realized, whoa, if I genuinely look at what it would take to love my kid i started talking in terms of commandments and i started talking in terms of right and wrong and prohibitions and insistences and, and he's he watched himself begin to concoct a do's and don'ts list and not because he didn't have any other incentive other than he loved his kid but when i told him if you loved your kid what would you do he started with i would tell them to not And so I just wanted to paint for Peyton, hey, on on theism, the way that we think is that God actually gives us the Bible as a love letter written to us. And of course, it's going to have do's and don'ts. Why? Because that's what we do when we love someone. And this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so that would be one of my, listen with an eye towards worldviews. Where can I catch moments where my son makes, or son or daughter makes a worldview statement or I hear it on TV or I hear it in a song and someone says something like, we're going to go and... What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me, right? And to tease that out and go, son, daughter, what do you think about that idea? Thirdly, be Socratic, so ask questions. Number two, listen and watch with an eye towards worldviews. Number three, move conversations to bigger things. I'm sitting at a Dodger game, talking to my son about loving kindness and the common grace that God has given for us to experience this night, for experience love for each other, that that we've got money to buy a Dodger dog and to get cotton candy at the end of the night, and that. The Bible says that God actually extends these common grace gifts so that we would know his character, that we would experience and enjoy him, and that it would bring people who don't know him possibly to repent and to turn towards him. God's loving kindness, the scripture says, will bring us towards repentance. So how can I move conversations to bigger things? And lastly, how can I kindly, with gentleness and respect, show them the weakness of other worldviews with grace and truth to show them the weakness of other worldviews? I like to do this by, it's a process called reductio ad absurdum, and it's basically an argument style that takes a belief system to its logical conclusion and say, what would this look like? So it's Peyton, it's, if naturalism were true, then when we die, everything just stops, which means there's no such thing as ultimate justice. Every suicide bomber, child predator, rapist, whatever it might be, when they die, it would just that would be the end of it. There would be no ultimate being made right. And, and those who experienced a whole life of following God or doing good things for people or the Mother Teresas of our world who kind of gave themselves to help other people. They would experience the exact same end as the serial killer or the genocidal dictator. We would all have the exact same fate. How does that sit in your heart? Does that make sense to you? Does that that weigh heavy when you hear that? And if it does, why do you think so? If we are just a random byproduct of chance, then why does that upset us so much to think that people are going to get away with stuff? When ultimately... All they're doing is what they were programmed to do from their DNA. Why do you think that is the case? And those are big questions. And obviously, as our kids are growing, we're going to adjust them and change them to whatever it is. And, and this just starts a conversation on worldviews that we'll be having for the next few weeks. But I wanted to present the idea of what is a worldview? It's origin. Where did we come from? What is the meaning of it all? How should we live? Where are we going? We talked about some primary worldviews in our world today, postmodernism, humanism, naturalism, pantheism, and theism. And then we said, well, how do we put those things in motions? If worldview is done through relationships, how do we create experiences with our kids in which we can have these conversations? And for us as dads to reinstate and reinvigorate the truth of Christianity for ourselves, that we would be more bold in whatever we are doing. And we want to be Socratic and ask questions, listen and watch the world around us with an eye towards worldviews, move conversations to bigger things, and show them the weakness of other worldviews with grace and truth. Hopefully this has been helpful for you guys and we'll continue next week as we start talking about some actual evidences for God's existence that we can share with our kids and kind of put in their back pockets as they face the different face struggles that they'll have in their life.